What do you do when you're waiting? What was the last thing or the last time that you had to wait for something? Maybe it was a package that you were waiting to have delivered or, or maybe it was a diagnosis that you were having to wait for or, or maybe it was something fun, you're about to go to Disney World or you're going to go on a holiday or something. What was the last time that you had to wait for something? I wonder if you can think for yourself for a moment, how do you, how do you go at waiting? Are you a good Waiter, are you patient? Are you calm? Or are you an anxious person when it comes to waiting for something? Are you kind of chomping at the bit for the thing and, and you're counting down the days? I, I like Toby started doing gymnastics recently. Uh, he, he loves it. And he, he's always asking, uh, is it gymnast in gymnastics today? How many sleeps until gymnastics? He, he's got the, you know, how many sleeps down pat? Because he's so excited for this thing that he's waiting for. I wonder if for you there's a difference in the waiting patterns between when you're waiting for a known time versus if you're waiting for something that actually is unknown. So you know that you're waiting, but you don't know when it's going to happen. It's kind of this, you're in a holding pattern with no end in sight. And that might be a positive waiting time or it might be a negative waiting time. How do you go in the waiting? And what about us as, as followers of Jesus? As we wait for the promised future that Jesus has spoken about, that, that one day Jesus will return, but when is that one day? What's it going to look like when Jesus comes back? And what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're waiting? How do we handle the time between now and when Jesus returns? Because it isn't known. God knows the hour and the day, but we don't. And there are signs, but then there's conjecture about what signs they mean and when it's going to happen. How do we go in the waiting? We're continuing our series today looking at the parables of Jesus according to Luke. Our mission here as a church is to journey with people towards Jesus. And so the current way that we're exploring that through this series is to look at the parables of Jesus. What did Jesus himself teach? What are the words that he gave and, and what can we learn from those parables? Uh, and if you, you haven't been along or maybe parables are a new idea to you or just to reiterate so that you know what it is, a parable is usually a short. There are some longer ones, but generally they're quite short. They're fictitious. So Jesus deliberately sets up the stories. It's not that he's retelling a historical event. He's making up a story that conveys or illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. And that's from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. But they are fictitious stories completely fabricated by the person that's sharing them. And so in Jesus' case, uh, he's making the story up. That doesn't mean he's not basing it on some known events or some known activities. He's basing it on aspects of truth, but it's not a historical story. 
Uh, So I'd love you to jump with me today in Luke 19. Uh, So Luke 19, we're going to pick it up at verse 11. If you want to follow along, it's on the screen. Uh, Otherwise, feel free to get out your Bibles, either on your phone or, you know, paper Bibles. They still exist. It's crazy. Uh, But feel free to follow along. Uh, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So let's just pause there, because as I always say, it's important to understand the context. And right here, Luke is giving us the context of why Jesus chooses to share this parable. You see, Jesus spoke a lot about this kingdom of God, or if you're reading it through Matthew's gospel, it's referred to as the kingdom of heaven. That there's, there's this future kingdom to come, and it's going to be God's eternal reign. And so there's the kingdom now and the kingdom not yet, because Jesus himself was bringing the kingdom wherever he went. But he also was very clear that there was a kingdom to come. There was something special that would come in the future. And so what's happening is he's been very clear about what's going on and he's been telling his disciples that the time is coming close where he is going to be departing. And they're coming towards Jerusalem and they know that something significant is going to happen in Jerusalem. And such has their buy-in been to his story that they're actually pretty convinced that he's just about to be made king. And then in that moment, this eternal reign is going to commence. And they're all really excited about the future that Jesus is about to bring and everything that the Jewish people have been hoping and longing for is about to come true. And so Jesus realizes that he needs to share with his disciples just a little something of what it's going to look like because it probably isn't going to look like what they're expecting. What's going to happen after Jesus is made king? What, what are we going to do and how are disciples to live in the time between when Jesus is made king and then when he actually returns? So let's jump on into the first couple of verses of it. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. So Jesus sets up the story. And he shares at the start this idea that he's going to, this person, this person of noble birth, is going to go to a distant country. And what he's expressing through this is that this king, this noble man who's going to become king, he's actually going to be away some time. This is not the next town over. This is not like, you know, a pack of cut lunch and sort of just go for a, a short little meander to the next town and then come back. He's going to a distant country. There is going to be a long period of time, define of long, you know, who knows how long is a piece of string. But whatever it is, it's not going to be a quick thing. He's going to a distant country. And so he gets 10 of his servants We actually only hear about three of them as we get through the rest of the parable. But he gets ten of his servants and he has ten miners. He gives them ten miners. Put this money to work, he says. So one miner 
was about three months' wages. So again, he's expecting to be away for a while. He's giving them a fairly significant amount of money for them to go away and to put it to work. And he gives them a very simple instruction. He doesn't have to write down a long list. He doesn't give them lots of yeses and nos and do this or don't do this. You know, put some money in this account, but don't put it over here. He simply says to them, put this money to work. You work out the rest. Put this money to work. But his subjects, the first that before was the servants. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And so Jesus sets up two kinds of people in this story. He has the servants and he has the subjects. Now the servants in this story are those that are following him. It's Jesus' followers. It's those people who have decided and determined that Jesus is the Son of God, or at the very least, he's the Messiah that they've been waiting for, and they've been following after him. But there's another group of people, the subjects, and that is, in this story, the Jewish people of the time. And they didn't like Jesus. They didn't accept him as their Lord and Savior. They didn't accept him as Messiah. But what's interesting about this in the story is Jesus doesn't give a reason. He doesn't seem to be concerned about why the subjects are actually saying we don't want him as king. He just says it matter-of-factly. There's a group of people that for whatever reason don't accept him as their king. And so you're going to hear a little bit of how this sort of works out. But generally speaking, he's focusing in on the servants. Just be aware that there is this other group. The subjects who don't want to accept him as their king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. So if you remember back, he had very simple instructions. Take this money, put it to work. He's gone away for a long period of time. He's been made king, even though there was a group of people that didn't want him to be. And he's now coming back. And it almost sounds like he's, he's excited to see what his followers have done. He, he's excited to see what they've done with his money. He wants to see what they had gained. You notice that he just assumes. He, he's assuming that they've gained something. He wanted to see what they, it didn't say, he wanted to say if they had gained. It doesn't say he wanted to see, well, maybe they've gained and maybe they've lost. That the assumption is actually built into the parable that it's expected that they've gained something from this money. Whether the Jews wanted him to be king or not, he was going to be made king, and he was. And the other thing this part of the story tells us is Jesus is being really clear that there is going to be a day that he returns, that there is going to be a time that he comes back. 
that though it might seem like he's been gone for a long time. And again, a lot of the earliest Christians after Jesus rose again and he, and he departed to be with the Father, for the first sort of 50 or 100 years, they lived as if it was imminent. And we're actually taught to live as if it is imminent. That, that at any moment, Jesus could return. But at the same time, while he is not with us, he has given us instructions about what we are to do while we wait. But his return is not in question. His return is not in doubt. So what are we going to do in the meantime? The first one came to him and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. So he's been given one miner and he's turned it into ten. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came to him and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. What's interesting here is we see that two servants put their miner to work. And each one who put it to work multiplied it. Now, they did multiply it different amounts. One multiplied it ten times. One multiplied it five times. And one of the challenges, even for me, as I, as I look at this, this parable, because this is Jesus speaking, so we kind of have to take that as being the Word of God, you know, Jesus being God and all. And he actually makes it clear that when he returns, there will be some who receive a greater blessing than others. That actually for what we use in this life, there will actually be some who are given, because the one who multiplied it 10 times, he is given charge over 10 cities. The one who multiplied it five times, he is given charge over five cities. But here's the thing to remember. Better is one day in his house than thousands elsewhere. That actually being in his kingdom in and of itself is going to be greater than anything we could possibly imagine. So on the one hand, you can get some people who look at this passage and they start to get really jealous and go, well, I'm going to make sure I'm the one with 10. And I don't actually sense these servants actually kind of competing with themselves. One came and was just really excited to say to Jesus, here's the 10 more. The next one comes in and they're not like, well, mine only got five. Then the next one comes in, here's the five that I got for you. They're just excited to give to their king what they had done with their minor. And sure, they might have a slightly different outcome, but I actually don't think the outcome in Jesus rewarding one more than the other is meant to be something that we go, oh, I really want to make sure I get them all. But are we faithful with what we were given? And then Jesus goes on. Verse 20 to 23. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. 
You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, and I, I just find this line really fascinating. I will judge you by your own words. So he's just going to take what this man has actually said himself and use that as the way of judging. You wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Uh, Jesus looks at this servant who comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, I'm going to give you back exactly what you gave me. Like, I haven't lost anything. You should be really proud of me because I didn't lose it. I, I'm giving it back to you. But instead, Jesus looks at him and goes, You wicked servant. The least you could have done. The least you could. You, you could have put that on deposit Okay, it wouldn't have multiplied five times. Okay, it wouldn't have multiplied ten times. Okay, it probably wouldn't have been multiplied two times. But it would have had a return. But instead, you took that miner and you hid it. What was Jesus' instructions? Jesus didn't actually, he didn't command them to make a return. He commanded them to put it to work. His concern was that they would be faithful and just do something with it. He didn't give them a minor to get it back. He could have kept it to himself. If all he wanted was to make sure that he had 10 minors upon his return, he would have just kept those 10 minors and then come back. But he wanted to give to his servants that they would take what was given to them and they would use it and would be blessed in using it. And so this one, this one servant, who he was a servant, so he's not one of the subjects. He's one of the ones who sees God. Now, there's a couple of reasons that's kind of given for why he might have done nothing. Now, what, what might have been the motivation and it might have been a mix of these two and there might have been some other things. But from what I was researching and what, what I've gleaned over the time is these are the two main reasons that are given. Uh, when the first one's given is that he didn't really know Jesus. Because if he knew Jesus, he would have known that he actually didn't need to fear him. It doesn't mean we have no fear of God or fear of God's person or, or fear in that sense. But he would have known as Jesus points out, Jesus uses it in his rebuke. You know that I can actually reap what I haven't sown. So why were you afraid of me? I can get back whatever I need. You had no need to fear me. So either the servant didn't really know Jesus. He purported to know Jesus, but didn't actually know him. Because if he knew him, he would have known that he didn't need to fear him. So you, you can read this passage and you can actually come away from this passage with fear. Because you can go, oh, but what if I lose my, what if I take the mine and I try and put it to work and, and what if I do lose it? Maybe I should just hide it under somewhere. 
And I think Jesus in his response to this person is actually reminding us, it's not about the return. It's will you be faithful to what he asks you to do? You don't need to fear him. You don't need to be afraid that Jesus is going to return and look at your measly little pile of what you've got and say, you didn't get enough. He can reap what he didn't sow. He doesn't actually need you to produce lots for himself. He is the creator of the universe. He could just make it up on the spot and replace it in a heartbeat. Giving you something to use is actually for your benefit. So you don't need to fear. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be concerned and sit back and go, I'm afraid I might use it wrong or I might not get it back. You can confidently use what God gives you for his purposes and trust in the creator of the universe that it is not something to be worried or concerned about. At least put it on deposit. The minimum you can do is put it so that it just comes back with a little bit. Again, it's not about the return. It's the faithfulness. Will you use this for his purposes? Another reason given, another reason he may have, Jesus might have caught him out. This might have all been a story that he sort of fabricated. because Or not Jesus, but the, the nobleman may have returned and caught him unexpectedly. He wasn't about the king's business. He was busy doing his own things. Rather than using that which was given to him, for the purposes given it. He didn't actually think this noble person was going to return. So it didn't matter if he did anything. Okay, he didn't lose the minor. He kept it just in case he ever came back. But if he comes back, I'll just give him what he gave me and surely that will be okay. And then I'll just get on with what I want to get on with. I'll do what I want to do. Maybe that's the reason he did nothing. And again, Jesus, in his response, or the, the nobleman in his response says, you wicked servant. The least you could have done. You, you could have just put this on deposit and then gone off and done whatever you wanted to do. And you still would have got a return. That's the least you could have done. Sure, you can go about your business, but use this minor for my purposes. And I think if, if this is actually the rebuke that is given to a person, that, that those who may have decided to follow Jesus but actually don't want to be about the business of Jesus, then I don't think this parable will, will reflect well at the end of time. It, it's not a hard thing. He's actually just, just saying, just put it to work. There's, there's multiple ways you can do it. But what you can't do is do nothing. What you can't do is just sit back and just wait for the king's return. What you can't do is not use what he's given you. The scope of what you can do is huge. And the concern about what might happen is gone. But will you be faithful? Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him 
and give it to the one who has ten minus. Sir, they said, he already has ten. Like, really? He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Now remember, this is the words of Jesus. I wouldn't put this in the Bible if I was Jesus because this is actually really hard to actually speak to because it doesn't sound fair. And just wait till we get to the next bit because this is nothing compared to the next bit. But, but Jesus could not be more clear in this parable. Those who are faithful, those who put to work that which is given them, will actually be blessed and receive even more. But for the one who does nothing, the one who sits back, the one who doesn't get to the work, the one who doesn't use their minor, even what they have, will be taken away. The inference being that they actually, they're not followers, they're not servants. They won't see the kingdom. Now that opens up a whole other can of worms that I will have to speak to at a different time because it speaks to salvation and where that sits. And if you've got questions, please come and talk to me. Uh, I, I believe that once you're saved, you are saved. So I think this says something to the character of the person and whether or not they were ever actually a follower of Jesus. Different sermon for a different day. Now, it's clear he's not, he's not rewarded here just for having 10 minors, though obviously he's the one who's given it. He's rewarded for faithfully following instructions because in Jesus' reply, he doesn't say, and those who achieve the most will be given more. He says, all, or to everyone who has, more will be so Everyone who has, more will be given. In this particular context, yes, the first person who receives more is the person who produced more. But it doesn't say it's only those who produce lots will be given more. It's everyone who has. Everyone who uses their minor for his purposes will actually get more and more, and be more blessed and more blessed. Because they're faithfully using that which God has given them. And then we come to verse 27. And I nearly cut this one off to do as its own sermon, but it's, yeah, it's, I didn't. So we'll see how we go. Uh, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now remember, this is a story that Jesus is sharing. What happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild? What happened to this little baby that we celebrate at Christmas time and that, that everyone seems to collectively love the idea of Jesus? Now again, this is the nobleman in the story, but he is playing the role of Jesus. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. These are the words 
of Jesus. So what's taking place here is Jesus is wanting to be clear. Remember, we started this by saying, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're waiting? Uh, What do we do while we expect the return of the king, but we live in that time before that occurs? What do we do? Well, Jesus is wanting to leave it very clear. He doesn't want anyone to be surprised when he returns that not everyone has a future in the kingdom of God. Not everyone has a future in the kingdom of God. Jesus' death on the cross made a way so that all may be saved. And it is by grace you're saved, not work. So following, being faithful, you're not earning your salvation again and again. That is also not what he's saying. But those who know him, those who understand just what he's done for them on the cross, they won't be able to help but serve him. But there will be people that at the end of time when Jesus returns, he will say to me, he will say to them, I do not know you. And it is so important that we don't lose sight of this as followers of Jesus. Again, I wouldn't write this passage because it's, he's effectively saying, bring them in front of me and I want to watch them be killed. Like that, there's something about that that it really, really grates on my understanding of Jesus. But I think part of it is the Father's heart wanting to be clear. Do you know me? Don't be against me. Don't work against my purposes. Recognize my son. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't miss this. Don't don't question whether or not there's going to be people who don't get in. It's going to happen. Be one of the servants, not the subjects. See, all we're asked to do, All we're asked to do is work with what we're given. You notice every one of the servants, every one of the servants was given a miner. They weren't told to go out and earn the miner themselves. They weren't told to go out and get the miner and see what they could do with it in their own own power. When we decide to follow Jesus, when we become one of his people, we are given something to use it's not by works it's not that you've earned it it's not that you're anything special it's god's gift to you and all we're asked to do is put it to work all we're asked to do is put it to work and some will have a twofold recovery and some will have a fivefold multiplication and some will have a tenfold multiplication. We're not told what happened with the other the other seven servants. And Jesus doesn't pick this up in that sort of in this exact frame ever. So we actually don't know what happened to those seven servants. We don't know had they used it, did Jesus just truncate the story, just share these three? All we can do is speak on these three. And of these three. All that we're asked to do is work with what we're given. So here's the thing. Every follower, 
If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have something to offer. You might be caught in the trap that says, I'm not good enough yet. I haven't earned enough yet. I'm still sort of trying to pay off my debt. Jesus paid your debt in full. You're good to go. And you are given something to use for the king. Just put it to work. Of the examples that we're given, again, we don't know what happens to the other seven, but of the ones Jesus chooses to actually flesh out, there's not a single example of someone putting their miner to work and not getting a return. Both of the people who chose to actually put it to work got a return. The only one who didn't get a return is the one who didn't put it to work. Do not live in fear that you might lose what has been given to you. Do not live in fear that if you do it, you might not do it well enough. You might not do it good enough and you might not get a return. Do not live in that place where you get trapped thinking that you need to hide that and keep it so you can give it back to Jesus. That is not what he asked you to do. He gave it to you to put it to work. So do that without fear because there is not an example given in Jesus' story where those who put it to work didn't receive a return. The only servant that was reprimanded was the one who did nothing with what they were given. If you're afraid of being reprimanded by Jesus, this may be part of your story or your background or, or maybe some of the things that have gone on in your life, kind of have you in a place where fear is something that's real and genuine for you. This, might, this is not the sort of thing that you just get over in a day, but the only person reprimanded is the person who did nothing. So do not be afraid of what may occur if you use what is given you. Just use it. Give that over to God. He is the God who can reap what he hasn't sowed, who can, who can get a harvest when he hasn't even put a seed in the ground. He is not concerned that you might not use your minor and you might lose it he wants you to put it to work see it's not the return that matters it's the faithfulness jesus will return he is coming he's going to come again and the eternal reign of the king will will commence will you have been found to be faithful with what he has given you in that time. Do not be afraid. Put it to work. You will be blessed. Because he who has will be given more. And the one who has nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray that you would help us as we sit in passages like this one. They, they can be tough. They can grate against our sensibilities and sensitivities of who you are and the sort of king that you are, the Lord that you are. But we thank you that in your love you are clear with us. And we thank you that we can know you and trust you. That you give us your helper, your Holy Spirit 
to poke us and prod us and encourage us in this direction. So Lord, I just want to pray that you would sit with us in this passage. For those that are here today, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us and encourage us to be using what you've given us, to not be trapped in fear. Lord, release us from that burden. Help us to joyfully serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to look forward to your return and to to look forward to sharing with you what we have done with what you've given us. Encourage us, inspire us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.